This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins Chapter 23 I had kept the pony chase ready, in case Mr. Franklin persisted in leaving us by the train that night. The appearance of the luggage, followed downstairs by Mr. Franklin himself, informed me, plainly enough, that he had held firm to a resolution for once in his life. "'So you have really made up your mind, sir,' I said as we met in the hall. "'Why not wait a day or two longer and give Miss Rachel another chance?' The foreign varnish appeared to have all worn off Mr. Franklin, now that the time had come for saying good-bye. Instead of replying to me in words, he put the letter which her ladyship had addressed to him into my hand. The greater part of it said over again what had been said already in the other communication received by me. But there was a bit about Miss Rachel, added at the end, which will account for the steadiness of Mr. Franklin's determination, if it accounts for nothing else. "'You will wonder, I dare say,' her ladyship wrote, at my allowing my own daughter to keep me perfectly in the dark. A diamond worth twenty thousand pounds has been lost, and I am left to infer that the mystery of its disappearance is no mystery to Rachel, and that some incomprehensible obligation of silence has been laid on her by some person or persons utterly unknown to me, with some object in view which I cannot even guess. Is it conceivable that I should allow myself to be trifled with in this way? It is quite conceivable in Rachel's present state. She is in a condition of nervous agitation pitiable to see. I dare not approach the subject of the moonstone again until time has done something to quiet her. To help this end, I have not hesitated to dismiss the police officer. The mystery which baffles us baffles him too. This is not a matter in which any stranger can help us. He adds to what I have to suffer, and he maddens Rachel if she only hears his name. My plans for the future are as well settled as they can be. My present idea is to take Rachel to London, partly to relieve her mind by a complete change, partly to try what may be done by consulting the best medical advice. Can I ask you to meet us in town? My dear Franklin, you, in your way, must imitate my patience and wait as I do for a fitter time. The valuable assistance which you have rendered to the inquiry after the lost jewel is still an unpardoned offence in the present dreadful state of Rachel's mind. Moving blindfold in this matter, you have added to the burden of anxiety which she has had to bear by innocently threatening her secret with discovery through your exertions. It is impossible for me to excuse the perversity that holds you responsible for consequences which neither you nor I could imagine or foresee. She is not to be reasoned with. She can only be pitied. I am grieved to have to say it. But, for the present, you and Rachel are better apart. The only advice I can offer you is to give her time. I handed the letter back, sincerely sorry for Mr. Franklin, for I knew how fond he was of my young lady, and I saw that her mother's account of her had cut him to the heart. You know the proverb, sir, 
was all I said to him. When things are at the worst, they're sure to mend. Things can't be much worse, Mr. Franklin, than they are now. Mr. Franklin folded up his aunt's letter, without appearing to be much comforted by the remark that I had ventured on addressing to him. When I came here from London with that horrible diamond, he said, I don't believe there was a happier household in England than this. Look at the household now. Scattered, disunited, the very air of the place poisoned with mystery and suspicion. Do you remember that morning at the Shivering Sand, when we talked about my Uncle Herncastle and his birthday gift? The Moonstone has served the Colonel's vengeance, Betteridge, by means which the Colonel himself never dreamt of. With that he shook me by the hand, and went out to the pony-chase. I followed him down the steps. It was very miserable to see him leaving the old place, where he had spent the happiest years of his life, in this way. Penelope, sadly upset by all that had happened in the house, came round crying to bid him good-bye. Mr. Franklin kissed her. I waved my hand as much as to say, You're heartily welcome, sir. Some of the other female servants appeared, peeping after him round the corner. He was one of those men whom all the women like. At the last moment I stopped the pony-chase and begged as a favour that he would let us hear from him by letter. He didn't seem to heed what I said. He was looking round from one thing to another, taking a sort of farewell of the old house and grounds. "'Tell us where you're going to, sir,' I said, holding on by the chase, and trying to get at his future plans that way. Mr. Franklin pulled his hat down suddenly over his eyes. "'Going?' says he, echoing the word after me. I'm going to the devil. The pony started at the word as if it had felt a Christian horror of it. God bless you, sir. Go where you may, was all I had time to say before he was out of sight and hearing. A sweet and pleasant gentleman. With all his faults and follies, a sweet and pleasant gentleman. He left a sad gap behind him when he left my lady's house. It was dull and dreary enough when the long summer evening closed in on that Saturday night. I kept my spirits from sinking by sticking fast to my pipe and my Robinson Crusoe. The women, excepting Penelope, beguiled the time by talking of Rosanna's suicide. They were all obstinately of the opinion that the poor girl had stolen the moonstone, and that she had destroyed herself in terror of being found out. My daughter, of course, privately held fast to what she had said all along. Her notion of the motive, which was really at the bottom of the suicide, failed, oddly enough, just where my young lady's assertion of her innocence failed also. It left Rosanna's secret journey to Fritzinghall, and Rosanna's proceedings in the matter of the nightgown, entirely unaccounted for. There was no use in pointing this out to Penelope. The objection made about as much impression on her as a shower of rain on a waterproof coat. The truth is, my daughter inherits my superiority to reason, and in respect of that accomplishment has got a long way ahead of her own father. On the next day, Sunday, the close carriage which had been kept at Mr. Abblewhite's came back to us empty. The coachman brought a message for me and written instructions for my lady's own maid and for Penelope. The message informed me that my mistress had determined to take Miss Rachel to her house in London on the Monday. The written instructions informed the two maids of the clothing that was wanted, and directed them to meet their mistresses in town at the given hour. 
most of the other servants were to follow. My lady had found Miss Rachel so unwilling to return to the house, after what had happened in it, that she had decided on going to London direct from Fritzing Hall. I was to remain in the country, until further orders, to look after things indoors and out. The servants left with me were to be put on board wages. Being reminded by all this of what Mr. Franklin had said about our being a scattered and disunited household, my mind was led naturally to Mr. Franklin himself. The more I thought of him, the more uneasy I felt about his future proceedings. It ended in my writing by the Sunday's post to his father's valet, Mr. Jeffco, whom I had known in former years, to beg he would let me know what Mr. Franklin had settled to do on arriving in London. The Sunday evening was, if possible, duller even than the Saturday evening. We ended the day of rest, as hundreds of thousands of people end it regularly, once a week in these islands. That is to say, we all anticipated bedtime, and fell asleep in our chairs. How the Monday affected the rest of the household, I don't know. The Monday gave me a good shake-up. The first of Sergeant Cuff's prophecies of what was to happen, namely that I should hear from the Yollands, came true on that day. I had seen Penelope and my lady's maid off in the railway with the luggage for London, and was pottering about the grounds, when I heard my name called. Turning round, I found myself face to face with the fisherman's daughter, limping Lucy. Baiting her lame foot and her leanness, the last a horrid drawback in a woman, in my opinion, the girl had some pleasing qualities in the eye of a man. A dark, keen, clever face, and a nice, clear voice, and a beautiful brown head of hair counted among her merits. A crutch appeared in the list of her misfortunes, and a temper reckoned high in the sum total of her defects. "'Well, my dear,' I said, "'what do you want with me?' "'Where's the man you call Franklin Blake?' says the girl, fixing me with a fierce look as she rested herself on her crutch. "'That's not a respectful way to speak of any gentleman,' I answered. "'If you wish to inquire for my lady's nephew, you will please mention him as Mr. Franklin Blake.' She limped a step nearer to me, and looked as if she could have eaten me alive. "'Mr. Franklin Blake,' she repeated after me. "'Murderer Franklin Blake would be a fitter name for him.' My practice with the late Mrs. Betteridge came in handy here. Whenever a woman tries to put you out of temper, turn the tables and put her out of temper instead. They are generally prepared for every effort you can make in your defence, but that. One word does it as well as a hundred, and one word did it with limping Lucy. I looked her pleasantly in the face, and I said, Pooh! The girl's temper flamed out directly. She poised herself on her sound foot, and she took her crutch and beat it furiously three times on the ground. He's a murderer! He's a murderer! He's a murderer! He has been the death of Rosanna Spearman! She screamed out that answer at the top of her voice. One or two of the people at work in the grounds near us looked up, saw it was limping Lucy, knew what to expect from that quarter, and looked away again. "'He has been the death of Rosanna Spearman,' I repeated. "'What makes you say that, Lucy?' "'What do you care? What does any man care? Oh, if she had only thought of the men as I think, she might have been living now. 
She always thought kindly of me, poor soul, I said, and to the best of my ability I have always tried to act kindly by her. I spoke these words in as comforting manner as I could. The truth is, I hadn't the heart to irritate the girl by another of my smart replies. I had only noticed her temper at first. I noticed her wretchedness now. And wretchedness is not uncommonly insolent, you will find, in humble life. My answer melted limping Lucy. She bent her head down and laid it on the top of her crutch. I loved her, the girl said softly. She had lived a miserable life, Mr. Betteridge. Vile people had ill-treated her and led her wrong, and it hadn't spoiled her sweet temper. She was an angel. She might have been happy with me. I had a plan for our going to London together, like sisters, and living by our needles. That man came here and spoilt it all. He bewitched her. Don't tell me he didn't mean it and didn't know it. He ought to have known it. He ought to have taken pity on her. I can't live without him, and, oh, Lucy, he never even looks at me. That's what she said. Cruel, 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 I said. No man is worth fretting for in that way. And she said, there are men worth dying for, Lucy, and he is one of them. I had saved up a little money. I had settled things with father and mother. I meant to take her away from the mortification she was suffering here. We should have had a little lodging in London and lived together, like sisters. She had a good education, sir, as you know, and she wrote a good hand. She was quick at her needle. I have a good education, and I write a good hand. I'm not as quick at my needle as she was, but I could have done. We might have got our living nicely. And what happens this morning? What happens this morning? Her letter comes and tells me that she is done with the burden of her life. Her letter comes and bids me good-bye forever. "'Where is he?' cries the girl, lifting her head from the crutch and flaming out again through her tears. "'Where is this gentleman that I mustn't speak of except with respect? Ha, Mr. Betteridge, the day is not far off when the poor will rise against the rich. I pray heaven they may begin with him. I pray heaven they may begin with him.' Here was another of your average good Christians and here was the usual breakdown, consequent of that same average Christianity being pushed too far. The parson himself, though I own this is saying a great deal, could hardly have lectured the girl in the state she was in now. All I ventured to do was to keep her to the point, in the hope of something turning up which might be worth hearing. "'What do you want with Mr. Franklin Blake?' I asked. "'I want to see him.' "'For anything particular?' I have got a letter to give him. From Rosanna Spearman? Yes. Sent to you in your own letter? Yes. Was the darkness going to lift? Were all the discoveries that I was dying to make coming and offering themselves to me of their own accord? I was obliged to wait a moment. Sergeant Cuff had left his infection behind him. Certain signs and tokens personal to myself warned me that the detective fever was beginning to set in again. "'You can't see Mr. Franklin,' I said. "'I must and will see him. "'He went to London last night.' Limping Lucy looked me hard in the face and saw that I was speaking the truth. 
Without a word more, she turned about again instantly towards Cobb's Hole. Stop, I said. I expect news of Mr. Franklin Blake tomorrow. Give me your letter and I'll send it on to him by the post. Limping Lucy steadied herself on her crutch and looked back at me over her shoulder. I am to give it from my hands into his hands, she said, and I am to give it to him in no other way. Shall I write and tell him what you have said? Tell him I hate him, and you will tell him the truth. Yes, yes, but about the letter. If he wants the letter, he must come back here and get it from me. With those words, she limped off on the way to Cobb's Hole. The detective fever burnt up all my dignity on the spot. I followed her and tried to make her talk. All in vain. It was my misfortune to be a man and Limping Lucy enjoyed disappointing me. Later in the day, I tried my luck with her mother. Good Mrs. Yolland could only cry and recommend a drop of comfort out of the Dutch bottle. I found the fisherman on the beach. He said it was a, a bad job and went on mending his net. Neither father nor mother knew more than I knew. The only way left was to try the chance, which might come with the morning, of writing to Mr. Franklin Blake. I leave you to imagine how I watched for the postman on Tuesday morning. He brought me two letters, one from Penelope, which I had hardly the patience enough to read, announced that my lady and Miss Rachel were safely established in London. The other, from Mr. Jeffco, informed me that his master's son had left England already. On reaching the metropolis, Mr. Franklin had, it appeared, gone straight to his father's residence. He arrived at an awkward time. Mr. Blake the Elder was up to his eyes in the business of the House of Commons, and was amusing himself at home that night with the favourite parliamentary plaything which they call a private bill. Mr. Jeffco himself showed Mr. Franklin into his father's study. "'My dear Franklin, why do you surprise me in this way? Anything wrong?' "'Yes, something wrong with Rachel. I am dreadfully distressed about it.' "'Grieved to hear it, but I can't listen to you now.' When can you listen? My dear boy, I won't deceive you. I can listen at the end of the session, not a moment before. Good night. Thank you, sir, and good night. Such was the conversation inside the study, as reported to me by Mr. Jeffco. The conversation outside the study was shorter still. Jeffco, see what time the tidal train starts tomorrow morning. At 6.40, Mr. Franklin. Have me called at five. Going abroad, sir? Going, Jeffco, wherever the railway chooses to take me. Shall I tell your father, sir? Yes, tell him at the end of the session. The next morning Mr. Franklin had started for foreign parts. To what particular place he was bound, nobody, himself included, could presume to guess. We might hear of him next in Europe, Asia, Africa or America. The chances were as equally divided as possible, in Mr. Jeffco's opinion, among the four quarters of the globe. This news, by closing up all prospects of my bringing Limping Lucy and Mr. Franklin together, at once stopped any further progress of mine on the way to discovery. Penelope's belief that her fellow-servant had destroyed herself through unrequited love for Mr. Franklin Blake was confirmed, and that was all. 
whether the letter which Rosanna had left to be given to him after her death did or did not contain the confession which Mr. Franklin had suspected her of trying to make to him in her lifetime, it was impossible to say. It might only be a farewell word, telling nothing but the secret of her unhappy fancy for a person beyond her reach. Or it might own the whole truth about the strange proceedings in which Sergeant Cuff had detected her from the time when the moonstone was lost to the time when she rushed to her own destruction at the shivering sand. A sealed letter it had been placed in Limping Lucy's hand, and a sealed letter it remained to me and to every one about the girl, her own parents included. We all suspected her of having been in the dead woman's confidence. We all tried to make her speak. We all failed. Now one, and now another of the servants, still holding to the belief that Rosanna had stolen the diamond and had hidden it, peered and poked about the rocks to which she had been traced, and peered and poked in vain. The tide ebbed and the tide flowed, the summer went on and the autumn came, and the quicksand which hid her body hid her secret too. The news of Mr. Franklin's departure from England on the Sunday morning, and the news of my lady's arrival in London with Miss Rachel on the Monday afternoon, had reached me, as you are aware, by the Tuesday's post. The Wednesday came and brought nothing. The Thursday produced a second budget of news from Penelope. My girl's letter informed me that some great London doctor had been consulted about her young lady, and had earned a guinea by remarking that she had better be amused. Flower shows, operas, balls, there was a whole round of gaieties in prospect, and Miss Rachel, to her mother's astonishment, eagerly took to it all. Mr. Godfrey had called, evidently as sweet as ever on his cousin, in spite of the reception he had met with when he had tried his luck on the occasion of the birthday. To Penelope's great regret, he had been most graciously received, and had added Miss Rachel's name to one of his lady's charities on the spot. My mistress was reported to be out of spirits, and to have held two long interviews with her lawyer. Certain speculations followed, referring to a poor relation of the family. One Miss Clack, whom I have mentioned in my account of the birthday dinner, as sitting next to Mr. Godfrey, and having a pretty taste in champagne. Penelope was astonished to find that Miss Clack had not called yet. She would surely not be long before she fastened herself on my lady as usual. And so forth and so forth, in the way that women have of girding at each other on and off paper. This would not have been worth mentioning, I admit, but for one reason. I hear that you are likely to be turned over to Miss Clack after parting with me. In that case, do me the favour of not believing a word she says if she speaks of your humble servant. On Friday nothing happened, except that one of the dogs showed signs of a breaking out behind the ears. I gave him a dose of syrup of buckhorn and put him on a diet of pot liquor and vegetables until further orders. Uh, excuse my mentioning this. It has slipped in somehow. Pass over it, please. I am fast coming to the end of my offences against your cultivated modern taste. Besides, the dog was a good creature and deserved a good physicking, so he did indeed. Saturday, the last day of the week, is also the last day in my narrative. The morning's post brought me a surprise in the shape of a London newspaper. The handwriting in the direction puzzled me. 
I compared it with the moneylender's name and address as recorded in my pocketbook, and identified it as once as being the writing of Sergeant Cuff. Looking through the paper, eagerly enough, after this discovery, I found an ink mark drawn round one of the police reports. Here it is at your service. Read it as I read it, and you will set the right value on the sergeant's polite attention in sending me the news of the day. Lambeth. Shortly before the closing of the court, Mr. Septimus Luca, the well-known dealer in ancient gems, carvings, intagli, etc., etc., applied to the sitting magistrate for advice. The applicant stated that he had been annoyed at intervals throughout the day by the proceedings of some of those strolling Indians who infest the streets. The persons complained of were three in number. After having been sent away by the police, they had returned again and again, and had attempted to enter the house on pretense of asking for charity. Warned off in the front, they had been discovered again at the back of the premises. Besides the annoyance complained of, Mr. Luca expressed himself as under some apprehension that robbery might be contemplated. His collection contained many unique gems, both classical and oriental, of the highest value. He had, only the day before, been compelled to dismiss a workman in ivory from his employment, a native of India, as we understood, on suspicion of attempted theft, and he felt by no means sure that this man and the street jugglers of whom he complained might not be acting in concert. It might be their object to collect a crowd and create a disturbance in the street, and, in the confusion thus caused, to obtain access to the house. In reply to the magistrate, Mr. Luca admitted that he had no evidence to produce of any attempt at robbery being in contemplation. He could speak positively to the annoyance and interruption caused by the Indians, but not to anything else. The magistrate remarked that, if the annoyance were repeated, the applicant could summon the Indians to that court, where they might easily be dealt with under the Act. As to the valuables in Mr. Luca's possession, Mr. Luca himself must take best measures for their safe custody. He would do well, perhaps, to communicate with the police, and to adopt such additional precautions as their experience might suggest. The applicant thanked his worship and withdrew. One of the wise ancients is reported, I forget on what occasion, as having recommended his fellow creatures to look to the end, looking to the end of these pages of mine, and wondering for some days past how I should manage to write it, I find my plain statement of facts coming to a conclusion most appropriately of its own self. We have gone on in this manner of the moonstone, from one marvel to another, and here we end with the greatest marvel of all, namely the accomplishment of Sergeant Cuff's three predictions, in less than a week from the time when he had made them. After hearing from the Yollands on the Monday, I had now heard of the Indians and heard of the moneylender in the news from London, Miss Rachel herself, remember, being also in London at the time. You see, I put things at their worst, even when they tell dead against my own view. If you desert me and side with the sergeant on the evidence before you, if the only rational explanation you can see is that Miss Rachel and Mr. Luca must have got together, and that the moonstone must now be in pledge in the moneylender's house, I own I can't blame you for arriving at that conclusion. In the dark, I have brought you thus far. In the dark, I am compelled to leave you, with my best respects. Why compelled, it may be asked? 
why not take the persons who have gone along with me so far up into those regions of superior enlightenment in which I sit myself? In answer to this, I can only state that I am acting under orders, and that those orders have been given to me, as I understand, in the interests of truth. I am forbidden to tell more in this narrative than I knew myself at the time. Or, to put it plainer, I am to keep strictly within the limits of my own experience, and am not to inform you of what other persons told me, for the very sufficient reason that you are to have the information from those other persons themselves at first hand. In this matter of the moonstone, the plan is not to present reports, but to produce witnesses. I picture to myself a member of the family reading these pages fifty years hence. Lord, what a compliment he will feel it to be asked to take nothing on hearsay, and to be treated in all respects like a judge on the bench. At this place, then, we part, for the present at least, after long journeying together with companionable feeling, I hope, on both sides. The devil's dance of the Indian diamond has threaded its way to London, and to London you must go after it, leaving me at the country house. Please to excuse the faults of this composition, my talking so much of myself and being too familiar, I'm afraid, with you. I mean no harm, and I drink most respectfully, having just done dinner, to your health and prosperity, in a tankard of her ladyship's ale. May you find in these leaves of my writing what Robinson Crusoe found in, in his experience on the desert island, namely, something to comfort yourself from and to set in the description of good and evil on the credit side of the account. Farewell. End of chapter 23 End of the first period